Well, good morning. I am what you call a portable pastor. I come ready. Well, thank you, Pastor Mandy and Pastor Sherry. Just um, a word uh, about Christmas comfort. Um, Leanne and I were counting up. Um, I have a running list of people who are grieving uh, in our congregation. And this is just since COVID. We have 20 families that have experienced loss as of this past Tuesday. And uh, so um, we invite you to come to the Christmas Comfort Service. There is a moment in the Christmas Comfort Service where we have what we call the Christmas Comfort Tree. And it is very, very meaningful and I think very, very healing. Well, you know, adult children are a problem. You know that, right? So my adult son, Scott, and Jessica, I'm going to leave him alone today, but I have another adult son, Joshua. Some of you know him. He is married to Melinda, and they they live in um, Stratford, and they just had a a little girl. Her name is Ellie. I'd love to show you the picture that he just sent to me. And um, just before I came up to preach, he sent me this picture of Ellie. She is 10 weeks old last Friday. And uh, underneath caption says, don't suck, Grandpa. So I emailed her back and said, I'll try not to. Adult children, what are you supposed to do with them? Well, we're looking at 1 John, and today our text is 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. Uh, I know you've been sitting for a while, and so I'm going to get you to stand together And uh, I am going to read this text for you. And this is what it says. I am writing to you, little children, because you are forgiven for his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And I am writing to you, children, because you know the Father. And then John repeats the same line again in verse 14. He says, I write to you fathers because you know him from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong. The word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is from the Father, but is, sorry, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray together. Father, we pause again this morning to thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy that you have exhibited in Jesus Christ with such generosity and with such graciousness. And we thank you for the fact that we also have the Holy Spirit who takes everything that you've accomplished in Jesus and makes it applicable and possible and available in our lives And Lord, in this service this morning, we have sensed the very real presence of Jesus, the felt presence of Jesus. And we thank you that you are with us and you journey with us. And we ask this morning, as we look in your word, that 
Lord, whether we are at home or whether we are in this room or in the overflows this morning, that we would be consciously aware of your felt presence in our lives and in our midst. And we ask that the same Holy Spirit, Lord, would just take your word and help us, Lord, to give ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts to comprehend, but also that as disciples of Jesus Christ, that when we leave this service and when we shut off our device, that, Lord, that we will live out what it means to be followers of Jesus in practical and meaningful ways. And so we ask this today in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. How do we know... If we are authentic Christians, how do you know that you are an authentic Christian? How do I know if I am an authentic Christian? Well, the text that we just read gives us three indisputable tests that regarding the authenticity of our Christianity. This is what Robert Law, a writer from a long time ago, called the three cardinal tests by which we can assess the reality of our spiritual lives. Law said that First John gives us these three tests and that we must constantly be applying them to our lives. Now, he named them theological, moral, and social. But for our purposes this morning, we are going to call them doctrinal, relational, and ethical. So we begin with the doctrinal test, which is determined by what we believe. Now John begins with three groups of people. He talks about talks to dear children or little children. He talks to fathers and he talks to young men. Now we can think of these literally as these three groups, children, young men, and fathers, but we can also speak of them metaphorically as we would to represent three stages in our spiritual journey. So, obviously, as little children, we might be new believers who are excited about the fact of our new faith and that we are forgiven. Or as fathers, and I would say slash mothers, could be mature or seasoned believers who are mature in their knowledge of God and the scriptures. And young men and slash young women, I think, are maybe those who are coming into their own, that are coming into themselves. And spiritually speaking, they are just beginning to hit their spiritual stride. So, what stage are we at? Are we little children? Are we young men or women? Are we fathers or mothers? Metaphorically, are we new believers, excited about our faith? Are we seasoned veterans of the faith? been around a long time, been saved a long time, been doing this a long time? Or are we young men and women who are just beginning to get traction and we're beginning to hit our stride and 
coming into ourselves spiritually. Of course, wherever and whatever stage of spiritual development we may be at, we have not yet arrived at to what we would call full maturity, which is Christ-likeness. And of course, no matter where we are or what stage we're at, the reality is there is always room for forward movement. So again, we come to John's favorite term of endearment. He talks to little children. It's in our text twice, in verse 12 and in verse 13. There are two Two of Christianity's greatest truths are these. That God knows us and we can know God. Aren't those two great truths? I love what 1 Corinthians 8.3 says, if anybody loves God, he is known or she is known by God. You are known by God. I am known by God. We are known by God. And not only that, but there's also this. We can know that we know God. There is this understanding that we have a kind of certainty and assurance that not only do we know God, but we can know that we know God. I'll let you think about that for a little bit. And then John makes reference to fathers and what I have said slash mothers and reminds us of spiritual parenting and the ongoing maturity that has taken place in our lives from the beginning of our spiritual journeys. For those of you at home and those of us in the room and those of us in the overflows, how many of us can remember the person or the pastor that we came to faith under? Raise your hand. How many of you remember the person who brought us to faith? Or how many of us remember the person or the pastor who most helped us grow and mature in our faith since we became believers? How many of you can remember that person? We all have them, right? Now, I would like all yours to be me, but I know that's not even realistic and not a reality and I'll have to get over myself and grow up. But I remember the person. But isn't it true that we have a special place in our hearts for that pastor or that person more than anybody else? It's true, isn't it? And then John addresses young men and young women. Now these are younger adults, but they are not immature adults. Now, I got some good news, and I got some bad news. Which do you want first? Okay, I'm going to give you the bad news first, but not really. I'm going to give you the good news first, because it messes up with my rhythm here. And you know it's all about me. The designation, here's the good news. The designation young man in the biblical text can refer to anybody who is under the age 40. Now, you can imagine what the bad news is. The bad news is, biblically, anybody over the age of 40, we are considered old men and old women. Ouch. Now, John transitions to our second test, the relational test. 
determined by how or what we love is somewhat abrupt. Do not love the world or the things of the world is a stern warning. John is insisting that we not do that. Matter of fact, in the Greek, it's in the imperative mood, which actually means that what John says here is actually a command. We are being commanded. We are being told. We are being ordered and directed not to love the world or the things of the world. But we then have to figure out what John means by the world. Because in the biblical text as a whole, from Genesis to Revelation, The world means different things. The world can refer to the earth, the planet we live on. It's called, we call it the world. The world can refer to the whole of the human race, and we consider people the world. The world can actually biblically refer to the animal world. But also, but it also can mean the world system of beliefs and values and behaviors which are not necessarily negative, but, but. Here, John seems to be using the final one that we just mentioned specifically in reference to the world system of values and beliefs and behaviors that are in opposition to God and his purposes. This is what he means by the world. When John tells us to not love the world or the things of the world, he is telling us not to welcome or entertain or be fond of any values or beliefs or behaviors that are in opposition to God or in opposition to God's purposes. With that said, we also have to understand that it is important to know what John is not saying. John is not calling us, you and I, to a monastic separation from the world. Now, what I mean by that is this. Throughout church history, Christians have devised drastic measures to avoid or to escape the world in an effort to remain spiritually pure. The most famous and funniest is a guy by the name of Simon Stylite. Remember that guy? He was a guy who for 30 years decided that he was going to sit on top of a pillar 10 feet high because he believed that whatever starved the body fed the soul. Actually, history tells us that not only did he almost starve to death, that his entire body was covered with bugs and... But there are others, of course, who have retreated to monasteries as a way of escaping the world, as a way of keeping their faith from being corrupted by the world. One of the best stories of monastery living comes out of Portugal. There is a monastery that is 3,000 feet that's perched upon a cliff 3,000 feet high. And the only access to this this monastery that's 3,000 feet high is in a swaying basket that is hung from a rope. 
that is pulled back and forth by several strong monks. You got the image? I'm nauseous already. 3,000 feet. So some tourists who were visiting or wanting to visit the monastery became quite concerned when halfway up the cliff they noticed that the rope was old and frayed. So in an attempt to sort of alleviate their fears, they asked the attending monk, they said, how often do you change the rope? And the monk's response provided a little help. He said, when it breaks. Now living as an ascetic or a hermit monk, or a cloistered group in order to escape the world is not what John had in mind because we all know this, that history proves that it is much easier to get the monk out of the world than it is to get the world out of the monk. It's a whole lot easier to get Todd out of the world than it is to get the world out of Todd. Now, we have to hold in tension what James says and what Paul says. Now, James says in James chapter 4, verse 4, he says, you adulterous people. Now, there's a way to start an address. You adulterous people, do not, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, Paul says, and he says this in the context of sexual immorality, but I think we're all smart enough this morning to make the conversion. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, 5, 9, and 10, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. We need to hold those two things in tension. Now, the reason John tells us that we are not to love the world and the things of the world and if anyone loves the world, then the love of the Father is not in him is because of this. What we love affects us. Who we love and what we love molds and shapes our lives. And so that brings us then to our third test, which is the ethical test, determined by how we live. Now, John says these words in verse 16. He says, for all that is in the world, and he lists three things, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, follow me here. The ESV, the English Standard, Standard Version, which is the text that we use here at Glad Eyes that I use, is one of the few uh, translations that actually uses the word desires. The NIV 
and the King James the, and uh, the NIV, the New International Version, uses the word lust instead of desires. And it says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Now, technically speaking, the word lust and the word desire is the same word. It comes from the same root. But we should add that desires and lusts is not necessarily negative. In the New Testament, the word translated lust and desires means a strong desire. It means to be passionate or to have an eager desire. It is used to describe, actually, in the biblical text, it's actually used to describe legitimate and godly desires in Philippians and in 1 Thessalonians. And Jesus actually uses it in Luke chapter 22, verse 15, when he's talking about his passion. I think we all know that there is nothing wrong with desire. Many desires are God-given. The desire to eat and to sleep and to work and to build and to procreate and to achieve, etc., are all natural desires to us as human beings. We, we know that. But, but, when God-given desires, natural desires, are twisted, perverted, corrupted, exaggerated, and overextended, they become unhealthy and they become subhuman. And so it is in regard to this, these things, that we normally use the word lust. Lust to us, more than desire, lust is usually negative, and most of us, if we're being honest, we usually use the word lust in a negative connotation as it is referring or in association with sexual immorality. Lust and desire, stated negatively, is literally translated hyperdesire or hyper-lust. Lust becomes an unhealthy desire when it takes on an unhealthy extreme. So when healthy desires become twisted, perverted, corrupted, exaggerated, and overextended from what they were meant to be as God designed them to be, they become hyper-desires and they become hyper-lusts. For example, there's nothing wrong with food until we have too much of it and we become gluttonous. There's nothing wrong with sports until it crowds out God in our lives. Now, there's nothing wrong with a kiss on the lips. As long as the person that we're kissing is rightfully ours to kiss. It's when desire goes awry that lust becomes destructive. Destructive lust is anything, any consuming desire that is either out of bounds or out of balance. Now in the biblical text, 
Out of bounds means any lust or desire for a person, object, or idea that is inconsistent with God's expressed desire for our life. To feel sexual desire for our spouse is appropriate. To covet our neighbor's spouse is an out-of-bounds desire. An out-of-balance desire means any legitimate desire or lust that blocks our ability to serve God and people. A student who is committed to getting good grades, which is a legitimate healthy desire, is unable to spend time pursuing God because they are consumed or it becomes a consuming out-of-balance desire. These are hyper-desires and hyper-lusts. That's what John says. Now, just in case we needed more examples, specific, particular examples, John gives us three overextended desires or lusts to consider. The first one is the lust or the desire to do. Now the lust of the, or the desire, the lust of the flesh is sensualism. A selfish, excessive gratitude of our physical or our sinful nature. The desire or the lust to do is to act out on out of bounds or out of balance cravings that draw us into sin and away from God. Now, John's second example is the lust or the desire of the eyes. The desire or the lust to have. The, the desire or the lust of the eyes is materialism. An ancient, anxious grappling for things we want but do not really need or cannot have. So out of bounds and out of balance cravings and lust stimulated by what is seen. Matter of fact, this line could be translated this way, the desire that originates with what is seen. And of course, we know that in the Bible, the eye is often used as a figure of speech to refer to sinful passions, Jesus. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, in the Sermon on the Mount said this, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, when Eve saw that the, uh, that the tree was good for food and that it was delightful to the eyes, and then in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2, to be fair to the women, David, the Bible tells us, saw, saw from his roof a woman bathing, and that woman Bathsheba was very beautiful, and we know what follows after that. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with material possessions whether it be homes or vehicles or clothes or toys or tools, etc., etc., etc. The Bible never condemns us for any of these desires. 
What is at issue is not the desiring and the having any of these, is but when they have us. When they have us, rather than we having them. And then John's third overextended, exaggerated, twisted, perverted, corrupted desire is desire to be seen, to be recognized, to be seen as getting the credit. Pride of life is egotism. The self-centered hankering to inflate, get it, our own little reputation. Pride of life is actually an extension of the first two lusts and desires to have and to do. It goes like this. It's not enough to do and to have. I must be seen as having and doing. I do, and I want people to know I do. I have, and I want you to know that I have it. Again, there's nothing wrong with taking pride in a job well done or feeling good about some milestone that we've achieved or even enjoying the affirmation of others if it is rightly deserved. But pride of life is that insatiable hunger for recognition, for acknowledgement, for getting the credit. And John says, or I'm telling you that John says that these three desires that he's listed to do and to have and to see covers the full spectrum and the continuum of what John describes as loving the world or the things of the world. And there's this. When Pastor Kevin grew up, when I grew up, or was growing up, my parents, our parents' generation, they had a a word that they used for inordinate and excessively loving the world and the things of the world. They called it worldliness. When healthy desires become twisted, perverted, corrupted, exaggerated, and overextended, they would say that we have become worldly. This being worldly or worldliness, loving the world or the things of the world, as our text says, is about this. It's about the attitude of our heart. It's about our interior life. It's about the inner person. But there's also this. Put your seatbelt on for a moment. The desire to do, to have, and to be seen can easily go undetected in our life. For example, we can appear to be free of twisted, perverted, corrupted, exaggerated, overextended desires and lusts and still be worldly. 
and still be controlled by these lusts. In other words, it is possible for us to avoid pornography and still harbor immoral sexual desire in our hearts. It is possible that you and I as people, that we can live simply while still having greedy desires for possessions. It is possible for you and I as individuals to fake humility and still secretly clamor for recognition and honor. You okay? Yes? Should I keep going? Now John concludes our text by saying this. He says, for all that is in the world, the desires, the lusts of the flesh, the desires and the lust of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. Not from the Father, but from the world. These are not from God, John says. If they were from God, they would be the best, but they are not the best. God has far better in store for all of us than any of these three. The lust of the flesh and the eyes and the pride of life. I stumbled upon this line this week. We can thrive on the bread of life or we can starve on the crumbs of the world. And it's not only that these three desires are not the best. The problem is is that they get in the way of what is the best. Because they interfere with our relationships. They interfere with our relationship with God, but they also interfere with our relationships with one another, with our spouses, with our children, with our siblings, with our friends, with our boyfriends, girlfriends, with our people we work with and go to school with. And to add to that, they don't last. They are ephemeral, they're temporal, they're short-lived, pleasures are fleeting, and possessions, we know, turns to dust. Earthly accomplishments are soon forgotten and even surpassed. You know, when I was growing up or when I was up, I never ever thought anybody would do better than Wayne Gretzky. Who's he in light of Sid Crosby? And others now. They don't last. John says, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And then there's this. Not only do they not last, they're way too shallow. These cannot satisfy what you're looking for. These cannot satisfy the deepest longings of my heart. And the problem with the desires to do and to have and to be seen is not just that they are wrong. It's just that they're not enough. 
First Samuel says this, and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. You see, it's not pleasure we need, it's joy. It's not more stuff I need. It's contentment. And we all know that it's not achievement and accomplishments that we're really after. But it's significance. Who we are. And whose we are. You see, joy and contentment and significance can only be found ultimately and eternally in our relationship with God. And healthy desires become hyper-lust and hyper-desires when we try and satisfy our empty hearts independent of God. Some of you will remember the late Charles Colson, famous for the Watergate scandal, went to jail for 18 months over it. But before he died, he said this, he described his life before he became a Christian. He wrote a, a really simple book, but a really, not simple in the sense as, but uh, just an easy read book called Born Again. He became a Christian in, in jail. And he wrote this as a description of his life before he met Jesus. He said this. He said, I had arrived at everything I'd ever dreamed about as a kid. I was 41 years old. So that makes him an old man, right? 41. He said, I was 41 years old. I had a six, a healthy six-figure law practice, clients waiting at the door, a yacht in Chesapeake Bay, a limousine and a driver. I was the friend of the sitting president and all kinds of people were working for me and others were dying to come to work at my firm. And then he adds, and I never felt more rotten in all my life. We know that we are on the right track when we want life with God more than anything else this world has to offer. I want to pray with us just for a moment, a second or two. But before we do that, for those of you that are online, for those in the room and those in the overflows, Where are our desires and our longings? Is the issue in our lives the lust of the flesh? Is the issue in our lives the lust of our eyes? Or is the issue in our lives pride of life? And only you know only I know for my life. I don't intend to suggest that I know for your life because I don't. I only know for my life. But usually in one of these three areas, we have some challenges. 
And it's okay because we're human and God helps us. But right now, I want you to just close your eyes for a moment of privacy. I want to pray for us. For you at home, if you can close your eyes, that'd be great. And you that are in the overflows, if you could do the same, that'd be great. Father, we have in Jesus Christ, by the ministry of the Spirit, we have experienced your felt presence during worship during prayer, and I hope during the teaching and preaching of your word. But I ask now especially that everybody in the auditorium and in the overflow and watching online, that we would be now consciously aware that you are speaking to us. And that we would be consciously aware of your presence, that we would experience the felt presence of Jesus. And Father, in this moment of privacy and this moment of honesty, we ask you now to put your finger on the issue in our lives that you want us to deal with right now. A lust of the eyes, a lust of the flesh, pride of life. Lord, that you would just bring it to our memory. Bring it to our mind. Help us to recall it. And Father, I pray now for every one of us that has that, whatever that is, in our mind's eye. You are calling us to forgiveness and letting it go. And so right now, Lord, together, in this room, online, in the overflow, right now, Father, we confess to you our sin that is either out of balance or out of bounds, that has either become a hyper-lust or a hyper-desire. We confess it to you now. And we ask in the name of Jesus for your forgiveness. Ask him for his forgiveness. And we thank you, Father, that in your forgiveness in Jesus Christ, we don't have to live in the shame and the guilt and condemnation of it. We are forgiven. You have buried it in the sea of your forgetfulness, and would you help us now to bury it in the sea of your forgetfulness as well? We love you. We praise you. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, doesn't that feel good? Doesn't that feel good? Would you stand? If COVID-19 has taught us anything, has taught me anything, it's this. is how small I am. And further, not only how small I am, 
in a healthy sense. In God's eyes, we're magnificent. It's just that we are magnificence with a lowercase m, not uppercase m. You know that, right? But we're still small. It has taught me of how little control we have. I have. And I think it is helping us to understand what is important. And it is certainly not stuff. It is faith and family and other relationships. It is health and it is having the right priorities. This is what John is talking about. Does that make sense? It does. We've come to the end. We've come to the end of our service. And so as we move forward, you know that things are changing in our province, in our city. Let's be conscientious. Let's be careful. And let's be safe. And let's remember this. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. So as we are dismissed, we exit the building into our vehicles. But as we're going, remember this. The felt presence of Jesus that we experience today, we can experience in our cars and in our homes and our offices. Pay attention to the felt presence of Jesus, consciously aware that he is with us. God bless you. Have a wonderful day. Keep dry and pray for no snow.